Hey, welcome to the Rooted to Live podcast. I was wondering if anyone could use some encouragement in light of the struggles and the tragedies of life. At the time of the recording of this episode, the world seems more chaotic and troubled as ever. A sickness, loss of jobs and business, racism, riots and violence, hatreds of all kinds. And I think it would be a relatable feeling for Christians who are thinking, God, where are you? Why is this going on? So with this in mind, I thought I'd try my best to offer some encouragement in looking at a scripture that may resonate with our times. I want to walk through the book of Habakkuk. I don't know the last time you've read it. Maybe you never have, and that's okay. But it may seem surprising how relatable this book can be. In the book of Habakkuk, we get a glimpse of the honest relationship between a godly man and God. The prophet Habakkuk is speaking to God on behalf of his people who are experiencing uh, terribly difficult experiences and wondering, I'm like, what are you doing, Lord? Where are you? Why is this happening? And this book is a beautiful depiction of authenticity with God and an invitation to trust in him. It can really be helpful in growing us, in dealing honestly with our emotions, our discouragements and doubts with God, and then therefore grow into a deeper depth of intimacy with Him. You may know a verse from this book. A key verse is, um, you might not even realize you knew it came from this book, but Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, The righteous will live by his faith. The book of Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And this prophet is unique because Habakkuk isn't speaking to the people of God in this book, but to God on behalf of his people. And what you can read is an intense and intimate question and answer between this man of God and God. It is real, honest, and direct. Habakkuk says what many of us have said, or if we haven't had the courage to say it out loud, we've wanted to say it to God. So I'm going to read for us uh, Habakkuk, and we'll work through the whole book. Um, Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So in Habakkuk's context, things are not good there. Habakkuk is honest with God about the burdens in his life, about the people of Judah, the people that are in his context. In Habakkuk's world, if you will. So his own people, they walk in violence, his own people in injustice, strife, and in conflict. And he's asking the why questions. And so whenever you hear why questions, know that that points to anger. In fact, you could say the amount of why questions we have usually points to the amount of anger we have. And anger is simply someone is blocking what we want. So be mindful that Habakkuk's honesty is not irreverent here. That's actually really refreshing. A part of spiritual maturity is being honest, especially about life circumstances. Uh, to tamp that down or push it down, that would be denial. And I don't know if you know this or not, but like unresolved anger over time can manifest itself as depression. Yet, many people, many believers are afraid to be honest in speaking with God. 
So can I just point out an observation here? Um, He already knows how we feel. God already knows how you feel. So just confess it honestly to him. What are the most burdensome things for you in this season of life? Is it um, the sicknesses in the world, the the virus that's going around, the pandemic? Is it um, the relational strife, the racism, uh, the hatred you see, the crime, the injustice? For me, and what I've experienced over the last mm, at least five months, uh, family strife. Uh, I have a son that's being bullied. I have a special needs son that hurt someone at school. I have a daughter who has a growth happening in her neck and we don't know what it is. It's a, a bone. They're calling it a bone spur, but it might be a bone tumor. Um, I have family members that are battling cancer, um, struggles of all kinds, um, sickness in our family, and just worries of life. An intimate, vibrant relationship with God are going to be characterized by honesty. And it's okay, it's, it's really good actually to speak to God about the things we care about most and being honest with Him about how we feel about what we care about. So Habakkuk is saying, you are nowhere to be found, God. In a sense, he's accusing God of not listening or seeing or being present. Well, then God responds. This is a question and answer kind of book. God responds. Consider the next verse. After Habakkuk cries out to God in verses 2 through 4, I'm going to read verse 5 now. This is God speaking. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So Habakkuk has been accusing God of making him look at injustice. God, why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to look at this? Why aren't you doing anything? And then God calls Habakkuk to like take a look at what God's going to do. Hmm. So God responds and says, I want you to look beyond just your people and what's going on in your context to a greater context, what is going on. And consider all the nations. Look among the nations, he says. Wonder and be astounded. God is essentially saying, I'm at work and working among all the nations, and you can watch me. And when God says, and this is an amazing phrase, right? I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Is that possible today? Since God is the same in character forever, wouldn't it be consistent with his character that he's up to something in your life and in this world right now? The invitation to watch him at work to Habakkuk is also an invitation to us. It's hard to keep your eyes on the character and conduct of God when they're also on the troubles of the world or your plans or your goals. So what does God tell Habakkuk that he's going to do? Next section, starting in verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God is essentially saying, I'm going to bring judgment and justice in my time in seemingly impossible and improbable ways, Habakkuk. I'm going to reveal myself in my way and in my time. Keep your eyes on me. 
I'm going to use wicked people to judge the unrighteousness of my own people. You may have noticed, though, that God doesn't answer Habakkuk's why questions. Did you catch that? And God usually doesn't, I think, because we usually don't care about the answer. We just want what we want. I know I've shared this before in different gatherings and maybe even on the podcast in the past, but before our oldest child was born, my wife and I experienced the miscarriage. And the Lord was gracious to my wife in that when the doctors communicated to her that it wasn't her fault, it brought like amazing and immediate relief. And there was some grieving in in those days. But for me, my experience was like six months beyond that experience. And it really built up in me. And I didn't know it was grief at the time, but, um, you know, those stages of grief, I probably had a lot of anger. And the evidence was the why questions. God, why did you allow this to happen? Why now? And I remember having an epiphany, or maybe it was the Spirit speaking to me, but in a sense it was like hearing, um, you don't care about the answer to the question, you just want your child. And that's true. If God were to answer my why question saying, well, I just want you to be able to connect with other people in the future, or have empathy... Uh, I I don't care about that in that moment. I just want my child. So actually God's really gracious and often not answering our why questions. And that's what he does here with Habakkuk. He doesn't answer that question, but he does answer. Um, He invites Habakkuk to watch him work. He redirects. God can redirect our eyes from our circumstances to him, to trust him. And that's what he's doing with Habakkuk here. So what is Habakkuk's response to God's answer? That's the next section here, starting in verse 12 all the way through chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk says to God's answer about, I'm going to do something you'd never believe. Here's what Habakkuk says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make man, mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and will look out to see what he will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. Hmm. Hmm. Habakkuk is not satisfied with God's answer. He's struggling. He begins with a rhetorical question. Is not the Lord eternal? You know, yeah, God's eternal. What he's insinuating is this. If God is eternal, then why would God allow his people to be annihilated by another people who deserve divine judgment even more than they? The struggle here is reconciling a theology about God with what God has just revealed to Habakkuk. You know, how do you reconcile the apparent theological convict uh, conflict in verse 13? Verse 13 again says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Hmm. Now, didn't God say in chapter 1 that, listen, I'm going to give you an answer and it's going to blow your mind. You're not going to even believe it. In a sense, what Habakkuk is saying is, I don't believe what you're saying. (laughs) And so we have this accusation in verse 13. If you're holy, then how can you work in injustice? How can you work through unrighteous people? God is holy and God is not unjust. He is ethically pure and God will judge sin and he does not hold sinners. He does hold sinners, I mean, uh, accountable for disobedience. 
But how can the proud, violent, and idolatrous like Chaldeans be used by God for a righteous work of judgment and seemingly escape the judgment of God themselves when they are certainly are no more righteous than Judah? Again, back in verse 5, God said, listen, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. And that's exactly what happens. Habakkuk is saying, uh, what? No way. That's not how you work, God. I cannot accept this. And then Habakkuk resolves to wait for an answer from the Lord. I'm going to wait at my watch post. I'm going to stay here on the, on the tower, and I'll wait for you to give a better answer. And we don't know how long Habakkuk waited, but we see the Lord's response starting in verse 2 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain in tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. The Lord answers Habakkuk in a vision. We're not told what the vision is that he saw, but we may assume that what Habakkuk says about the future of Judah and the Chaldeans is based on what God showed him. Consider again God's word regarding Judah, the key verse of the entire book, chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This whole book was building to this point. When we encounter dark days that are filled with difficult questions of life, it comes down to this. It comes down to faith, doesn't it? Will I trust in God? Can I trust in God? What has been revealed to Habakkuk is that there is hope for those who will hold firm their trust in God as trouble arrives. Here we see some gospel implications. When we read the just or righteous will live by faith, a couple implications. Number one is that the righteous people have faith. And number two, this faith saves them from God's wrath. Now, the gospel tells us that the relationship between trusting God and standing righteous before him is that God looks at our faith in Jesus and counts us righteous. The reason God can do that for us is that Christ took the punishment of our sin upon himself. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, uh, shall the righteous one my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Hmm. That's foreshadowing of the cross in a sense, right? Habakkuk couldn't see ahead to how God would preserve both his holy hatred for sin and his merciful forgiveness of sinners who trust him. But God revealed it, and so he proclaimed it, Habakkuk did. The righteous gain their lives in the judgment by faith. Remember that the just aren't sinless here. The just shall live by faith. That's not a sinless people. It's just those who are right with God in spite of their sin are those who trust in God for his mercy. But how can a holy God who hates sin show eternal mercy on sinners who simply trust him for mercy? God did not reveal that to Habakkuk, but God did reveal it in time to us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we actually get an answer to that tricky question. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The prophets bear witness to it, like the prophet Habakkuk. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Another way it said just a few chapters beforehand in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. So the foundation of righteousness is faith, and the righteous are those who trust in God's righteousness and not their own. Like we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Our righteousness isn't about moral codes and religious ceremonies, but a gift of God by faith. And sometimes we miss a key word in God's vision to Habakkuk. The just or righteous will live by faith. That that means that faith isn't a one-time thing or like a decision you made when you were a kid. Faith is about a daily dependence on God, trusting in Him, trusting in Him in the storms of life, the disappointments and the struggles and the heartbreaks of life. Each one of us has to decide in who or what will we put our trust or live for, if you will. It's revealed to Habakkuk the consequences of misplaced trust. And this is found in verses 4 through 19 of chapter 2. And really what we see is like a five-fold woe or forewarning. Uh, God revealed to Habakkuk that the Chaldeans would eventually be ruined as a result of their misguided or uh, misplaced trust. Um, I'll read it for you. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 4. I'll read like verses 4 through 8. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is, a, is as wide as Sheol, like death. He is never enough. He gathers for himself all the nations and collects his own, uh, as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say... Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, and for how long, and loads himself up with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake will make you tremble? Then you will spoil for them. You will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Really what the warning is here, what the woe is here to the Chaldeans eventually, is that um, the woe comes from those to those who... We're not supposed to put your trust in possessions, he's saying. This reminds me of the account of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 asking Jesus, what can I do to, eternal, uh, to get eternal life? And Jesus puts his finger in the very thing that has this man's trust, his stuff. But our possessions cannot save us from God's judgment to our sin is what God is saying to Habakkuk here. Then we come to the next woe, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out for the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Hmm. Really what this is talking about is how the secure will become unsecure, how the Chaldeans will become unsecure, because you're not supposed to put your trust in personal security. Savings account, 401k, those can't save us from God's judgment to our sin, is what Habakkuk is saying here, or God is saying to him. Then we come to the next woe, the third woe, starting in verse 12. Woe to him who builds, his, builds a town with blood and found, founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
This is talking about self-glory will be turned to shame. So the third warning is don't put your trust in personal glory. Our glory, our fame, our notoriety will all fade. I think about that with social media, just becoming known or taking on a, a perspective that's the popular perspective so that you'll get praised or likes or little hearts or whatever. We're quickly vanishing from you. The earth is the Lord's and he will fill it with his glory is what God says to Habakkuk. Then we come to the fourth woe, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the, to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? Hmm. So these Chaldeans were worshiping their own success. And God says, their judgment's coming. So the fourth warning is, don't put your trust in personal success. Our success is in work or our hobbies. They can't save us from God's judgment of our sin. And so the next woe, the last woe, comes with verses 18 again, as you may have just heard about the idols. Why would someone put trust in an idol when they made it themselves? Woe to him who says to the wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Catch this, teach. Can this teach? I mean, behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. What's the warning here? What's the woe here? Don't put your trust in idols. And idolatry really is more than carbon images, isn't it? Idolatry happens when we take something or someone, even a good thing, but make it a God thing. It's looking to anyone or anything other than God for approval. So worship is our response to what we value most. And our worship, therefore, is reflected in and by the things that we think, do, and say, and can be tracked by the use of our time and our talent and our treasure, as people like to say. So some have asked, well, since long ago false gods or idols aren't real, what does it matter? It's fake. And the answer is that, in a very real sense, our belief in idols is taking on a lie. That in them we will find everlasting joy or peace. But in the end, they only offer counterfeits, and they cannot save us from anything of eternal consequence. Hmm. Only God can. So the temptation thrown our way from the days of Adam and Eve to us right now is to worship that which is created and not the Creator. To place our trust in anything or anyone else besides Jesus. So really there's a war for our worship. Even in these days, there's a war for our worship. And misplaced faith or trust and worship always results in disaster. Hmm. Listen to verse 20 again. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God's glory will fill the earth, not the glory of the Chaldeans, <laughs> not our glory. Not the glory of any political party. God assures Habakkuk that the pride of the Chaldeans will come to a woeful end and that any in Judah who humbly trust in God will gain his life. And that's true today. Jesus came to bring freedom and life, to offer abundant life, life to the full. And sometimes we settle for much less or fall into the temptation that someone or something else will save. But there's nothing greater than the love of the Father and biding in that love and trusting in him for that love. So... What's Habakkuk's response to God's answer? This is chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according... Uh, now, this is a tough word. Uh, uh, Shigianoth. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. I don't remember how to say it at this moment. But 
S-H-I-G-I-O-N-O-T-H. You probably haven't had a nephew named that in a long time. This word's also found in Psalm chapter 7, verse 1. It's really kind of unknown. Some suggest that it's an enthusiastic or triumphant prayer with musical accompaniment. So this is a prayer or a song of Habakkuk the prophet. Hmm. Verse 2 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The last phrase of this chapter says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk is singing his response to God's last judgment against sin and the lives spared for those who trust in God. What we're seeing here shows us how to accept God's plan with faith. Habakkuk now, with a clearer view of God's character, has seen God's plan. That his own people are deserving of correction, and he asked the Lord to do what he has revealed. It's like he's saying, not my will, but your will be done. With this attitude, he makes a request. He asks the Lord to remember to be merciful in judgment. So no longer doubting God, but trusting God as a result of God's word to him. So his request really reveals like a shift of heart like a changing of heart, a changing of mind, or a renewal of mind. This reminds me of scriptures like, those who seek me will find me when they seek me with their whole heart, or draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. See, the conversation with God has changed, Habakkuk. And that's what happens when we get authentic with God, when we get vulnerable with God, and listen to him through his word and remember his character. We gain perspective, we change. Sometimes we grow in compassion because we experienced his compassion, or we gain victory over a besetting sin because we experienced his kindness that led to repentance, or we grow in righteousness because we experienced God's holiness. Transformation and growth will happen when we seek him and he lovingly, intentionally works in our hearts, creating change from the inside out, giving us a new heart or new eyes to see him for who he really is and, and seeing who we are with or without him and then to see others as he does. So Habakkuk is now singing of the greatness of God. Listen to verse three. God came from Teman, uh, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed with his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him was pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, looked and shook the nations, and the eternal mountains were scattered and everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Habakkuk sees the Lord, the divine warrior, overcoming the powers of darkness. The words and images are of a comfort to Habakkuk because he knows that God is faithful to deliver his people and defeat his enemies. This isn't only in Habakkuk's near future, but also in the day of the Lord at the end of time. Look at the next section, or consider the next session, verse 12. Um... I'm just looking at other passages here between these sections. Verse 8, I'll start, I'll look at that. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your trade of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, and raging waters swept on. The deep grave forth, gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, in the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Hmm. 
You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. The prophet knew. The prophet knew the power of God. And then he knew God's power from his work in the past. So he counted on God's ultimate victory in the future. This is a great lesson for us as well. Remembering God's character in the past to speak to our anxiety and troubles concerning our view of current circumstances. Since his character is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can trust him. If we can trust him to take care of our eternal salvation, our eternal home, can't we... mm, can't we trust him with what he has to say about our money or our work, our world events, our past, our concerns, or our today or our tomorrow? Verse 16, I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I'll quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Even though his body trembles at the thought of an invasion from the Chaldeans, he waits quietly for what must be. Waiting on the Lord is often not easy for us because only the Lord knows exactly how long he will take to fulfill his promise. And it may sometimes seem like a long time in coming, but God will perform all that he intends. And this is where our faith in God is tested most, isn't it? In the waiting. Do we trust God no matter how long it takes? Are we willing to persevere in faith to the end? Will we trust God even in the fulfillment of his promises, even if they don't happen in our lifetime? Habakkuk concludes his song by saying, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Hmm. Habakkuk says, Even when the fruit and the produce and the flocks and the herds are destroyed, and my very life is threatened, I will rejoice in God. He shows us what he means by faith in chapter 2, verse 4, that the just shall live by faith. Living by faith is putting your hope on and in God no matter what. The, The righteous will live trusting in him. So that was stated as a principle in chapter 2, verse 4, but now celebrated as Habakkuk's own song here. So in other words, and in closing, really, no, no matter how severe the tribulation when the enemy invades the land, Habakkuk will never stop trusting in God. He will rejoice in God even though there is bad news. God is faithful. Habakkuk is confident in wrath. God will show mercy to those who trust in him, and this causes Habakkuk to rejoice. So in this book, Habakkuk moves from complaint struggling to understand the ways of God, and more than complete accusation, actually, of God not being present, to a point of total surrender and contentment, which is true joy. I would define joy as deep-rooted contentment. Because of this, Habakkuk became deeply determined to trust in the Lord. His journey is really the journey of every believer, trusting in God today, and then when we wake up tomorrow, and then if we wake up the next day, the next day, and then increasingly so. 
and you and I were invited to be honest with God about how we feel. And we're honest, we're invited to be um, to draw near to God. You're invited to trust Him. We're, uh, you're invited to rejoice in His word, to rejoice in His promises, to rejoice in His character. And when you do, you will have joy. Even when things in life are awful and terrible and confusing, trust in the Lord. 